Welcome to episode 16 of Dramatic Impact. I'm your host, Elaine Elrod. This month we have a special audio documentary about a play out of Calgary called The Invisible Project. The Invisible Project is part of Calgary's This Is My City program, a year-long initiative to help homeless people to express themselves and voice their concerns through the arts. Contributors to the program include the City of Calgary, One Yellow Rabbit Performance Theater, and individual artists within the Calgary community. Part of the concept of the This Is My City program is to bring artist mentors together with the homeless to enable homeless art makers to find their creative voices and encourage homeless citizens to use their art making as a conduit for public advocacy and dialogue. The Invisible Project was part of This Is My City and part of One Yellow Rabbit Performance Theater's annual cutting-edge theater and arts event, the High Performance Rodeo. The Invisible Project had its origins last fall with mask-making workshops facilitated by Douglas R. Witt at homeless shelters in Calgary. Douglas R. Witt is a professional mask maker who creates masks for theater, television, and film. During the mask-making workshops, the director and facilitator of the play, David Van Bell, along with assistant director Aviva Zimmerman, interviewed many of the homeless participants. These interviews were videotaped and became the basis of many of the characters and stories in the play. The play was collectively created by the entire company, which included David Van Bell, facilitator and director, Aviva Zimmerman, assistant director, Paisley Sim, stage manager, Douglas R. Witt, mask maker, Terry Gunvordal, set and lighting designer, Carla Ritchie, mask assistant, and last but not least, the three performers, actors Molly Flood, Richard Lee C., and Jed Tomlinson. Douglas R. Witt is not only a mask maker, but also a photographer, and took photographs of some of the homeless in Calgary and of the actors during rehearsals. These photos make a great visual complement to the documentary. You can check them out and get more information about The Invisible Project and about Douglas's work by going to the Dramatic Impact website at www.actingandtheater.com. And that's theater spelled R-E. In this audio documentary about The Invisible Project, the voices you'll hear woven together come from recordings of the play itself and extracts from interviews with three people. The performances and the interviews took place last January. Just to help orient you as a listener to the first part of the episode, the first voice you'll hear is Linda Coleman, drop-in center client. Then you'll hear David Van Bell, the director and facilitator of the play. The third voice you'll hear is that of actor Jed Tomlinson, performing one of the monologues from the show. Following that, you'll hear the voice of actor Richard Lee C., who I interviewed and who you'll also hear in character performing his monologues. Finally, you'll hear the voice of actor Molly Flood performing her monologue. I hope you enjoy the show.
Well, the homeless people do have, they are like shadows. They tend to have no faces because they don't want to be seen. Beings, as I used to be one on the street, I was like that too. And I was afraid of what maybe you would think of me. And But then I didn't care either because nobody cared. So, yeah, they portrayed it really well. They portrayed me perfectly. And I was on the street for many, many years. And today I'm not. And I'm grateful. What I wanted to do was to take these video interviews and uh, get the actors to reproduce as faithfully as they could the content of the interviews, almost photorealistically, to pick up the ahs and the ums. I, you know, I transcribed these interviews before we began rehearsal as directly, as verbatim as I could, as a means of sort of presenting, trying to present a document to the audience that had as little of us as artists in the way, because there's a lot of work about homelessness, I think, that can get very sentimental or that's not accurate or it's we have sort of this outside of you without actually sort of diving in. And, and we know that the experience of the lives of the people that live at the drop-in center are very different from our own lives and that we can't pretend that we know what it's like. So instead, we just ask them questions and then try to reproduce their answers as faithfully as we could. Here's my mask. The Goblin Goalie. No, I uh, don't really want to put it on. I'll, uh, I'll get paint all over me. I made it to... Uh, actually, I just made it to fill some time. You know, you, you get off the board, uh, lost in your own little head, so to speak. So, yeah, I thought, what the heck? Well, I, I got here to Calgary because uh, my truck broke down. Blew a rod inside the engine block of my truck, right in front of the uh, right in front of the city limit sign, right on the number two. <coughs> a big bottle of oil stain sitting right on the side of the road there for me. Well, I just grab my bag, left my truck. Well, yeah, and actually, I had one family member here in Calgary. I looked them up and stayed with them for a few weeks. Managed to find another job where uh, another fellow from the company lived around the corner, so didn't need a vehicle. Oh, it's a heavy equipment job, but running front end loader. Well, heavy stuff, but I run them off. Uh, front end loader, uh, excavator, bulldozer, bobcat, skidster, packer. Well, the only one I pretty much haven't run there or can't run is, is a grader. Uh, that's a big long one with the grader in the middle. <laughs> can't run one of them, maybe. They got like 42 levers in them. But I did you not. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, stayed with them for probably about five weeks. And, uh, well, yeah, they got a big fight with his wife. and. Me and him ended up getting a place together. Lasted for about a week and a half before he went back with his wife and uh, stuck with a thousand dollar a month apartment. Yeah, it's on the other side of town. No ride to work. Go back to square one. Oh, I can't get to work. I've uh, got huge rent to pay, and you know they don't need someone who can't show up. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been a slow skid since then. Well, they, uh, they technically they wanted me out on the 15th, so uh, kind of, you know, kind of skipped it a couple days. And, yeah, I spent a couple days on the streets, you know, uh, 
Believe it or not, I slept at the end of uh, 68th Street here in Calgary, 68th and Memorial. There's a church right behind the building, and uh, right, right at the end of the street, there's a church there. Behind that is where they keep the garbage bins, and uh, it's all closed with wood. And behind that, two nights. Yeah, I got rained on both nights. Wasn't liking that too much. I know we had it pretty hard to uh, stay clean and sober, so to speak. You know, like uh, when, when you're going through it, and uh, you got no place to stay, nothing really to eat, and uh, on top of it, you're curled up in the soaking wet blanket trying to stay dry. It's uh, it's pretty hard to stay on the straight and narrow, so... Well, uh, a friend of mine, I went down to see him, he's like, Come on, let's go. You want to go and get hot? So I'm here. You know, you know what, things are pretty good for me here. It's, uh, it's a comfortable environment, believe it or not. Yeah, you get the odd wing that who's having a bad day or whatever, throwing his temper around, but, uh, you know, it's not bad. Well, it's the first time ever I've been in a shelter. Up until, uh... About five years ago, I was a homeowner. Went through a bad divorce. Nasty divorce, you know, just gave everything to the wife. That was that. The only thing I took with me was my son. Well, this is my last day here. Well, I'm hoping, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I might come back for tomorrow night just for the simple fact that I want to keep my bag with me all day tomorrow. And, uh, you, know, you know, it'll give me that one day of actually uh, having a bit of money in my pocket again to kind of get the feeling. So, you know, even though I can't go anywhere, it's kind of, haha, I got money, but uh, I'm not spending it. Well, tomorrow I gotta go to uh, go get my paycheck to get me up before we break. When I get up there, actually, I'm gonna go to uh, Walmart. Grab a big chunk of Bristol board. I'm gonna write on the Bristol board all the pieces of equipment I can operate. I'm gonna go stand in the Tim Hortons lineup. Well, well I figure all the construction guys are going in, you know, they're going grabbing like 20 copies at a time, so they're short one guy that day. Hoping oh, it'll work for me. So, like I said, I uh, might be back here for tomorrow just, you know, to get that extra little uh, over the hump kind of thing, because. Uh, you know, I'm still not quite comfortable with my sobriety yet. I'm uh, afraid to, to, to wander too far away from the nest, so to speak. You know, like it's, uh, I, I don't know, yeah. I don't even know why I get high. I yeah. don't like myself when I'm high. It's just, okay, it's addiction. It's, you know, it's just. Okay, um, well, this one here is a, it's a cover up one. I got my name homemade tattooed underneath there with the needle. It's, uh, yeah, I was on an iBinge just turned 16. I'm like, yeah, give me my name, tough guy. So I was the only one they had in the tattoo shop that was uh, big enough, dark enough to cover it up. That's how ugly it was. It's a Grim Reaper. That's what that's supposed to be, yep. Well, on this one here, I uh, walked by the tattoo shop in Surrey. I seen it up on the guy's wall. It looks just like my cousin's boyfriend, George. Yeah. I mean, other than the fact it's supposed to be a skeleton, it looks like a spitting image, like, like the beard, the bandana, everything. It's like, yeah, I gotta have that. And, uh, well, the name of my son that I raised from, uh, from, from two years old by myself there, Jesse James. Oh, and big across my back here, I got to, I got Mazatlan 06, fucking A. <laughs> well, I spent three months there, eh? First time I was actually doing something for me, well, other than the drugs, but so I did three months and uh, boy, what a blast! I mean, uh, can't wait to do it again. You know, it's uh, it, 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 I won't do three months again just because of how much money I spent. Like I spent the better part of uh, forty grand in three months, but uh, I'm telling you, everything I ever wanted to do, I did it all in one vacation. Like it was great. It, uh, 
you know, just hanging around the pool and watching the girls running around in their bathing suits for the first couple weeks. And, uh, oh yeah, I had my buddy, uh, Manuel, I believe his name was, a little waiter. Glass never hit empty. Oh yeah, I had a great old time. Oh, and there was none of the other drugs around to tempt me, so that was good. You know, the, the only drug use was the alcohol. And, you know, when there's none of the other stuff around, alcohol's not a problem for me. I can actually just, you know, drink and have a good time. Did I know anyone who was homeless before I got to the shelter? Well, yeah, actually, I, uh, before I became homeless, uh, I was putting people up in my place. Well, there's a lot of homeless involved in cracking. I mean, it sucks the money right out of you. Tends to be all you do all day is, you know, chase money to get more crack, everything else goes to buy. You know, your groceries, you don't put groceries in the fridge, your rent, your stuff in your rent. It's like any other drug, I suppose, but. Oh, yeah, I knew. Put up quite a few people, and. When it became my turn for being homeless, couldn't find no one to help me out. Yeah, that's where this place come in. I had to duck out of your age what it's like being homeless. Uh, honestly, I probably avoid the whole conversation because uh, I don't like Calgary. It's, uh, I, I mean, other than this place right here being here for me when I really need it, I got no use for it. I mean, it's been nothing but bad news for me. Like, like the people with the drugs are aggressive, man. They come right to you. You, you look in, you want, you need. It. It's called food. They call it food out here. Need food, need food, need food. Uh, I mean, maybe it's me because I'm, uh, I'm a little skinnier and I got the features and the. the what do you call it? Say? But you can always tell the, the, the drug users because they're missing teeth. You, your gums shrink so much from it or something. Like my top ones were gone before I even started using drugs, so that's not why my top ones are gone. But, uh, just got them back the other day. Must have looked like a real prize. <laughs> oh, my first two weeks here, I put my bag down. Someone stole my bag, had my false teeth in it. Went, uh, went almost eight months with no teeth. I'm not kidding. Got him, uh, just got him on Wednesday, just got him back. Sure lifts your spirits. You, you feel like a whole new person. You, you know, you can actually smile and there's something there to see. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> so, uh, off the floor back for me. You know, that's not the brightest place for me either, but, uh, you know, you know, with all the drugs running around that city because of the money, it's, uh, uh, that's why I'm hoping for a camp job, you know? Get me in the middle of bloody nowhere, paycheck stacked up till it's time to go. I'm gonna go back home and see my son. Because we're portraying real people, people who we've met and people who we've interviewed, you feel a certain honesty that you need to bring to the work? I mean, you should always try to bring some honesty to your acting, obviously, but I mean, literally, you're seeing the person that you're portraying out in the audience and you just want to play them as true as possible and not exploit their story nor cover it up, just give the facts basically the masks i think one of the things that was most interesting about the masks is the way in which sometimes the masks would resemble the people who had made them doug is very specific in his workshops to not give the participants any kind of direction as to what kind of mask they should make or a topic for the mask or subject matter for the mask he just lets them make whatever they want and we found that the masks that got made very often bore a resemblance to the people that made them one of the masks that we use in the show is a, a beautiful mask actually the young man who made it is very talented 
it features, and we talk about it in the show, it features, it's sort of a, a half mask, sort of a demon's mask that has two horns, but one of them is broken off. And I asked him what he called the mask, and he said, experience. And I thought that was a really interesting title for that particular mask. Uh, this is the mask I made. Right now, I'm just calling it frustration because it has been the source of so much frustration for me right now. Um, I'm just trying to get this done and it's not happening. <laughs> I keep having to go over the same four spots with like layer after layer of paper towel and it's just been so frustrating. It's gonna be, like the payoff's gonna be so great once I'm finally done. Like hopefully that actually happens, you know, when finally get it done, but we'll see. Uh, there's two horns and one of them's broken. Experience. You got the fight and you lost. And now he knows better than fight, be an idiot. Uh, this time around, I've been here at the shelter for two days. Yeah, I was here for a month, about four months ago before. In between, I was in Vancouver, doing the street thing out there. That was, uh, that was pretty intense. I'd gone on the street for like four months. That was brutal. Uh, my friend was like, hey man, you wanna go to Vancouver? And I had a hard time making friends. So I was like, sure, let's go to Vancouver. We took the bus out there. We got off the bus, it was raining. We didn't have any place to stay. We went there without a plan, without any clue what was going on, how we were gonna survive. We kind of just like winged it. Turned out all right for a little while. I came back to Calgary because it's depressing. Well, not Calgary, Vancouver. Oh my goodness gracious, the East End. Holy smokes, man. It's just so, it's the birds. Yeah, pigeons. They're all on one foot because they get these massive infections from the dirt on the street and the razor wire on the fences. Not all of them, but there's quite a number of them hop around on one foot and their other foot's either badly infected or just plain missing. I couldn't handle it anymore. Like, it was too intense. So after four months, I was done. I pretty much came back to the shelter. That's how it worked out. Is there anything I would say to the city? No! Um... This city is so freaking sterile. Why doesn't anybody have some fun once in a while? Oh my god. It's not disgusting like Vancouver is, but it's the total polar opposite, right? It's so sterile. Like there's no like, like the green spaces are like these really out of the way areas, right? And there's just like, everything is like so sterile and like so clean and just like, which isn't the worst thing on the planet, but people have some fucking fun once in a while, you know? That's what I tell them. What's fun? I don't know, go and trash something. Like seriously, man, I don't know. Why not, man? This city, is, everything is just like proper. Like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like the polar opposite of Vancouver. Everybody just like trashed everything all the time. Like in this city, nobody ever does anything like ever. What do I want to do with my life? I don't know. So freaking lost right now, I don't know my head from my ass. Mostly this place is just a place to crash. I love to make tons of these, man. These are awesome.
Could you say something about what your favorite part of the whole play was, a specific moment, and to try to describe it for people that weren't here to see it? I thought it was when the young lady came out and she was from Winnipeg. I felt sorry for her. I don't like Winnipeg. Uh, I saw her as myself. I was a prostitute as well. And some of the life experiences that I went through were pretty scary. And then at the end, when she was cleaning all the clothes up, because there was a fight, and that happens here every day, too. Everybody fights all the time over a chair, over foolishness. And I thought that when she was cleaning up everybody's mess, there again, there I was, that's what I try to do, and I try to help people, and that's what she was trying to portray, that she was there just help one person, just if one person would pay attention to what she was doing and how she was acting and how she was doing what she was doing, then that one person would have a chance. And I watched somebody, and now I'm doing the cleanup. I've been here four years. I moved up once, tried it, just couldn't afford the rent, so I ended up coming back here. And I, I don't have time to make masks. I do a lot of volunteering. Now I help out wherever I can. Upstairs, uh, in the kitchen, uh, down here with the math program. We've got like an increase of 100 and some people here now since the Cecil closed, so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now, I came here for work. And as for being homeless, I don't know. I just got into the situation and it's kind of hard to get out of the situation. And I'm on disability, so you know it's difficult. Yeah, I've been in women's shelters. Oh, it's no comparison to the drop-in. <laughs> well, because those are women, and it's nice to be around women, you know? Like a lot of us have been abused, we've been through the ring around before, like marriage war, stuff like that, so, so we all kind of relate to one another. Yeah, I was in an abusive relationship. I kicked him out of Winnipeg. Uh, we just couldn't get along. You know, the drinking, the drugs, we just couldn't get along. It's, uh, you know what's written? It's hard to get out of this place. It's a money situation for us to get out. And, yeah, it's hard being around people who are dealing with drugs around here. It's, you know, when I see them, it's scary because I used to be there, and now I'm not there, and it's a different situation. I did cocaine, street drugs, street pills, like Tylenol, Valium, stuff like that, yeah. I quit because it cost a fortune <laughs> and I was tired of working and being a street person and you know working hard for my money just to buy it and, and then support my boyfriend on top of it and I just said that's it. Yeah. I was, uh, I was out one night, minus 30, I remember that in Winnipeg, and I was standing on the corner waiting to get picked up by a customer and I just said that's it. So I stood there for a while and went over to the street church, started talking to them and warmed up and that was it, I think. I made my transition right there. Then I just went home. And I said, this is what I really want to do. I really want to quit. You know, being a prostitute and I just want to have a normal life. And I did it. Yeah, I got off the drugs. It took me a week. I got off it. I was sick. But after that, I felt okay. I mean, you know, I did it. Like a lot of people here can do it if they really want to do it, but you know, it's got to be in their mind. And Winnipeg 
guys for work. That's why I was prostituting, because there was nothing else left to do. It was the only thing left to do, and you have to do something to survive as a woman. Yeah, I know selling your body is the best thing about <coughs> Money is money. At that time, I looked at it that way. I have no regrets. I had fun doing it. I met some nice people, a lot of nice men. Most of them were married, but they were very nice. They treated me really good, so that's what counts. I had a couple of bad ones. Now one literally chased me. Now I was out one night and just the way he started talking, he started getting abusive and because I was abused before, I thought, no, this is the time the person who's gonna deal with you. Stopped the railway track and I jumped out. And I thought he was gonna go, but no, he got out of the stretch and started looking for me. And it was dark and, and there's all these bushes and I was hiding underneath them and you know, it was really, really terrifying. And I thought he was gonna kill me. But he didn't, he couldn't find me. So I waited till I got back from his truck and disappeared. Then I came out of the bushes and I managed to walk to the bar. I went in there, and I sat there, and then I got a cab and I went home. So yeah, I was close. It was a close call. So now I'm here and I want to help other women. I just hope a lot of them will take my advice because, you know, it's hard. I know it's hard for them. Because once you get into a situation being a prostitute, it's hard to get out of. And, you know, maybe some of them have AIDS now, and even they have C's, so they don't care anymore about themselves. You know, and that's not the way to look at things. you got to think, you brought this on yourself. <clears throat> you know, there's no one going to get you out of the situation. you got to do it yourself. Like, no matter how many supports we have out there, we got to put it in our minds to do it for ourselves. Because <clears throat> there's no one out there that can help you. But... Now, I'm lucky to be alive. I'm here, I'm drug free. I still have a problem with alcohol once in a while, but it's not as bad as the drugs. And you know, I come so close, like, if you wanna do something, you wanna do something, no. So I to say no, you know, you have to walk away from them because I just can't let myself go back in that situation again. Like, like, like I've come so far, even being homeless is not so bad. It's just getting back on my feet and deciding what I wanna do with myself is what I wanna do. Now, when I hear these people complaining, like the men, I say, hey, you know what? It could be a lot worse. We could be out there. You know, at least we have this home. If I have something to say to Calvary, keep up the good work. And uh, don't let homelessness be a part of that. Like, like, forge ahead and help the people get a home, you know, that they can afford according to our income. That's what I'd like to see Calgary do. You know, they want to shut this place down eventually. They want to make the city not homeless, which I hope it happens, but I doubt it because where, where are the mental people going to go? You know, the ones coming out of the institutions, where are they going to go? Who's going to take care of them? And what about the seniors? So, I doubt it'll happen. bit of just straight exploration in the masks and it's really amazing how much 
the creators of the masks, because they were created by the clients, came into our own bodies without having met some of the clients prior to this. Our mask maker remarked that we looked and moved so much like these clients who had made these masks, even though some of us had never met those clients. So it, there's, there's a sort of energy, as magical as that sounds, a sort of energy that's just carried in through the masks. And when you kind of open yourself up to it, it can really, you can learn a lot. I wanted to ask you about the masks. Have you, I imagine that you've done mask work before, but have you? Just a little bit. I used mask in the first show that I ever directed professionally when I was oh, 26 or so. So that was a little over 10 years ago. So it's been kind of good to go back to mask work. And could you explain to the listeners how you think the masks affect the aesthetic of the show? The masks are used in the movement pieces in the show, and to give kind of an idea of what the masks look like, they are black cloth hoods with Velcro on them that sort of cover the face entirely, and no eye holes, or the eye holes are sort of screened out, so you don't really see the performer's eyes. How do they see... Uh, they do have eye holes with like a little bit of netting behind it so they can kind of see through and still leave their eyes sort of invisible. And on these masks, uh, they stick pieces of features that are kind of sections of masks that Doug made, fragments, an eye or a mouth and a chin or a brow or whatever, a section of a face. And the rest of the face is sort of comprised by things that we found on the street. Before we began rehearsal, I sent the company out and said, you know, be magpies. Grab things that just catch your eye on the street. So a dirty playing card, uh, part of a discarded uh, Remembrance Day poppy, money, a half a Visa card, uh, all of those kinds of things. And they have Velcro on them as well, and they get stuck on, and they sort of complete the face. The masks are kind of like... If I think about it, they're sort of like an outsider's view, like our own perspective on what we see on the streets from our own observations, with the idea being that we're kind of not really getting the whole picture, the the full-fleshed human being. And so when we finish one of these movement pieces, the actor peels off the pieces of the mask and puts them in their pocket and then pulls off the hood and starts speaking in their natural face, in, their, in the actor's face. And that was kind of a way of engaging the idea that, at the very least, these interviews are what people told us. And so something about what they wanted to reveal about themselves and not just sort of an outside view, but something that came from the inside. And I wanted to ask just the way that you integrated the mass into the rehearsal process. Was there any special ritual that you use to integrate the masks just for the actors to get used to them and to kind of feel the power of them or anything like that? Yeah, a lot of mirror work. We actually first started by inhabiting the masks that were made in these workshops, just as an exercise and uh, seeing what came out of that. But then as the mask pieces sort of started coming in, and they were, you know, sort of a gathering experience and that, that we would get a few and then a few days more, we'd get a few more. Douglas would sit in on rehearsal and say, oh, well, this is what I'm seeing. I'm going to make this piece and this piece and this piece. And then he'd bring them in. And we would have mirrors in the room so that the actors would kind of construct their own face based on mask pieces and artifacts, this collection of artifacts that we'd had that they had sort of magpied off the street. And they would try a face and we'd look at that face. Okay, well, now go to the mirror and see if you can, you know, use that face to sort of inform the body. When you're dealing with mask, I read a really interesting analogy of it in preparation for this, is that mask work is kind of like when you're wearing a mask, the whole of your body becomes like the expression of the face and the mask becomes the expression of the eyes on the face. 
Okay, the mask becomes the expression of the eyes on the face. Could you explain that a little more? Do you mean the eyes on the face of the person wearing the mask or the... Well, you know, when you look at somebody's face, uh, you read information out of it, you get an expression on the face and you can know something about what the body is going through, right? When you have a mask on and you're actually covering up the face, then the body has to take over in the expressiveness and the mask itself sort of serves as the eyes, which is kind of like the window to the soul, right? And so the mask itself gives information about the interior space of that person. Yeah, it's like a mysterious thing because the, you know, sort of the obvious thing is the mask doesn't actually move, right? But I guess it's a kind of the same thing that your eyes don't actually move. Well, it's up to the actor to sort of animate the mask and to let the mask animate the body. I would love to work with more performance creation that involves people from outside of the theater community because theater should be a reflection of our society. And so we should be going to other communities within our society outside of the theater community to get true stories and to get things that are relevant to what's happening to us today. It's my journey being here. It's my journey. Yeah. And the first day I walked in here, I freaked. I was so scared. I sat at my table and just like, oh my God. I used to walk by this place. I, I used to live in Bridgeland, just across the bridge. I used to walk by this place, just kind of shoving it off, you know, like, who are you? And what do you know, I'm part of the drop-in now. And see, now I see the homeless in a totally different way. You know, even though we have so little, like, uh, like the food on our plate or what we carry around every day, we still will give out little we have. You know, let, let's, say, let's say this is all I have in my backpack. I will still give the person I'm with who has less than me, I will still give him that chunk of potato on my plate. You know, even though we have nothing, we still will give, we still will risk. Does that make sense? So this has been really self-healing for me, just being in such a shelter. It's been a real challenge for me, you know? My parents don't even know I'm here. I haven't talk to them in six months, and I'm sure they're worried to death, but I won't. It's just something that I had to, to say, look, I had to deal with some stuff. So when I say this place, uh, no, this place isn't a bad place. It's, uh, it's who I choose to hang around with. Uh, I, I remember one of the staff said to me, uh, when, when you walk out that door, walk, you know? You don't want to come back here. You don't want to tell people where you are because you don't want to attract that crowd and sabotage yourself again. But I will never forget what it is to be homeless. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Down in the river to pray. I hope you enjoyed listening. Next month, I'll release an edited stereo recording of the play so that you can get a better sense of the play as a whole. Following that, I'll release the parts of the interviews that weren't included in this audio documentary. Now, I'd like to make a special request of you. Please help me spread the word about the podcast. iTunes has now made it easier to rate a podcast, you don't even have to write a review. So if you're a fan of this show, please go to our page on the iTunes store and give us a rating. It'll really help increase our visibility on iTunes and help us get more listeners. 
Also, welcome to all of you who found us through Odeo. Odeo has played a huge part in helping me get new listeners and in increasing my search engine rankings. Finally, the reason that the podcast is a bit late this month is because we'll soon be presenting our first video episode. I've joined forces with videographer Brandon Rhyness and former journalist Karen Sherlock. And as a crew of three, we shot interviews and captured footage at McEwen College in Edmonton in their technical theater department. The resulting video episodes will cover the backstage work that goes into a production of a play. So look for that over the next few months, and I'll also continue to produce audio episodes. I'm Elaine Elrod. So long until next time. 